You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Sometimes our greatest victories also reveal our greatest weaknesses. 30 years ago this year, I was in eighth grade showing off at a school dance, and I had learned how to do a split. For those of you who don't remember those days, or maybe you weren't even born yet, you can Google later some artists like Kid and Play or Vanilla Ice or MC Hammer. I actually wore MC Hammer pants. I actually had a haircut somewhat similar to Kid and Play. I had the whole eraser thing going on in my own way. Yeah, that was those days. And I had learned how to do a split. And I'd also been watching MTV and trying to figure out how to dance. Well, in my particular eighth grade year, uh, not very many eighth graders danced. So whoever was dancing, everybody would gather in a big circle and watch them and celebrate them. And that sounded glorious to me. In fact, the year before, when I was in seventh grade, I watched these older eighth graders dancing and everybody clapping and cheering to their name and thought, I need that to be enough in life. And I had it. And it was glorious. And at the end of this dance, my friend Rich was to kneel down and I was going to leapfrog over him and go right into a split. And when I did, there was this loud popping sound as my pelvic bone snapped in two. And I've told that story before. That's not a new story. But what God did in that moment in my life, as he revealed to me, I love the approval of people way too much. Way too much. That's critical <clears throat> for where we want to go today. Because what I want to do throughout this message is I'm going to look at two different stories, two different kings. The first two kings in all of Israel. The first one Saul, the second one David. Now, Saul was chosen by God. The people demanded a king. They wanted a king. God wanted to be the king over the Israelites. But the Israelites wanted somebody because all the other nations had it. And you can already see in Israel, they're not longing for God. They're longing to be enough for everybody else. So God chooses the guy who's taller literally than everybody else in the land. He looks the part. He comes from a good family, good tribe. He's smart. He's, he's passionate about justice. He wants to fight for the people of Israel. Except there's one thing majorly wrong in Saul's heart. And that thing is that Saul is very, very, very concerned about what everybody else thinks. One day, God calls Saul to go to battle against the Amalekites, to carry out the justice of the Lord against the Amalekites. And Saul does it, and he wins, and he wins decisively. But God was very clear in his instructions to Saul about what to do and how to do it, and Saul didn't obey. And he's got all these reasons why he didn't. And he's waiting for the prophet Samuel to show up so he can make a sacrifice, and everybody can worship the Lord and praise God. Our God won over the foreign nation God. That's not how it goes. Samuel shows up, and he finds out that Saul did not obey the Lord. Take a look. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22. Samuel replied, Doth the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. To heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. This is tragedy of all tragedies. God chose Saul. Saul has turned away from the Lord. And now God is going to remove Saul as king. And when Saul hears this news, this news should have floored him. He should have fallen on his face, repenting. 
back in that day when people repented, what they would do is rend their clothing, rip their clothing, literally tear their garment in two, take dirt and throw it up and put it on their head as a sign of grief and sorrow and change. And oh, it's this terrible news and I need the Lord and help me. I'm nothing but ashes. I came from ashes. I'll go to ashes. Save us. Help us. But Saul doesn't do anything like that because Saul's greatest victory revealed his greatest weakness. His greatest weakness is he's more concerned what everybody else thinks than what God thinks. Take a look. Verse 24. Then Saul said to Samuel, I've sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. That is a great start, Saul. Great start. I was afraid of the men and so I gave in to them. Even better. Not only does Saul first acknowledge his sin, but now he knows where it came from. I've identified the problem. And knowing, as we used to say when I was a kid, is half the battle. This is great, Saul. You're on a great path. But verse 25 happens. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. See, you may not understand their culture, so you don't understand the nuances. And I recommend you go read it. But here's essentially what's happening. Saul's saying, look, I know I didn't do what I was supposed to do. I know, I know, I know. But he still believes in his heart. Though he's being confronted with good and bad and right and wrong, he still believes he's justified to do it. He's rationalizing his sin. And before we're too quick to get harsh on Saul and judge Saul. Come on, don't we struggle with that too sometimes? It's okay for me to do the wrong thing because they did the wrong thing first. It's okay for me to do the wrong thing because if you knew my situation, and I know God knows my situation, God would say it's okay. He would approve of this. But obedience is better than sacrifice. Verse 26, Samuel says to him, I will not go back with you. You've rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. The story goes on, but what Saul should have done in that moment is, is what we should have done in that moment. He should have fallen on his face before the Lord and begged the Lord to forgive him. Lord, I'll do whatever it takes. I'll do whatever it takes to be right with you again. But Saul didn't do that. So this is a, a big and heavy topic. What I want to talk to you about today is we've gone through the series all about freedom. And what I want to talk about today is repentance because repentance is key to freedom. You will never find freedom in your life. You will never experience the peace of God in your life until you learn to repent. And here's the thing, a little adage you need to learn. Being a Christian, following after God does not mean that you're never going to sin again. When you sin though, what do you do? How do you return to the Lord? And really, at the root of it, that's what the word repent means, to return. Literally, the Hebrew word shub or shuv means to turn. It actually can be used and is used at times in history and Greek as, a, as an army word. It's an about face. It's a turning around. How do I do that? Well, what I want to do next is um, we're going to take a look in a moment at a guy named David who actually does this and does this well. We'll study his example. We'll take some principles from our lives and figure out how to apply them today. So... Hosea, phenomenal book, one of my favorite books of the Bible, but kind of confusing if you just pick it up and read it. I do recommend you read it, but you might be good to get a study Bible and go through it with notes. God tells the prophet Hosea, you're going to marry a woman and she's going to cheat on you. And um, you're going to go and win her back and love on her and she'll do it again. And you'll keep doing this. In fact, one day you'll actually buy her back. So she's actually sold in the marketplace um, because the people who took advantage of her just didn't love her, didn't care for her, nothing like that at all. And Hosea, sadly, in the middle of the story, goes back to win back his wife, to buy back his wife from the marketplace. And I realize it's a totally different world than our world today. But this is powerful because God says, your wife is going to represent my people. 
I'm going to love them, I'm going to bring them back to myself, I'm going to care for them, but no matter how many times I do this, their hearts just won't seem to turn to me, to return to me. And then Hosea chapter 7 verse 14 says this, They do not cry out to me from their hearts, but they wail on their beds. And the point of that quote is we see in the heart of that Saul. And sadly, sometimes we see our own heart. In other words, we lie on our bed feeling the weight of the discipline of the Lord and the consequences of our situation. And if you didn't hear last week's message, I kind of covered that. Consequences are the natural byproduct of our choices. The way that our choices, our sin, our rebellion against God has hurt and impacted those around us. Discipline is what the Lord does, just like you as a good parent with your children tries to teach and coach and change your child to become like God, to obey and do what is good and right in his eyes. So what's happening is as people are experiencing natural consequences and even the discipline of the Lord trying to bring about fruitfulness and faithfulness in them, instead of changing, instead of changing their hearts and rendering, rending their hearts, they cry out and complain about the pain they're experiencing. And this is Saul to a T. Saul just keeps complaining about the way things are going poorly, but he doesn't ever repent. Here's the problem that Saul has. It's the same problem that we have. Is Saul wants to use some cheap form of repentance to try to get to God. And you can't do that. There's only one way to repent, and that is to actually repent. Here's some of the games that I've noticed we play. There's some, uh, some things we do. So here's a question. When you get exposed, when you get caught, what do you do? Well, <clears throat> option A. Ready? You can hide. We see this in the garden. Adam and Eve are placed in a beautiful garden. It says they're naked and had no shame. There's nothing in the world to say, you're not good enough, you don't measure up. There's nothing in the world they've ever done wrong. Nothing. It's a perfect, perfect environment. And God gives them one tree, the tree of life, and he gives them another tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eat all you want from the fruit of the tree of life. Eat all you want from these other trees in the garden, but have nothing to do with that tree. Now, one day, Eve is tempted by Satan, and instead of resisting, instead of obeying the Lord, <clears throat> she chooses to disobey, and she eats the fruit, and she gives some to Adam. And Adam, instead of choosing to obey the Lord, he looks at Eve and is like, well, she didn't die. The Lord said we'd die. She's still alive, so apparently I could do it too. And she, he takes the fruit, and he eats it for himself. Now, immediately what happens is they go and hide in the bushes. They were naked and had no shame, but now they have much shame because they didn't do what the Lord told them, and they're hiding. And by the way, we've been doing the same thing ever since. You ever notice how much your sin loves the darkness? My wife and I like to joke. <clears throat> when it's really obvious that one of us is wrong, we love to look at the other one and say, now come on, repeat after me, my wife was correct. We do this in front of the kids because we're laughing and joking. And you know what? Even when we're laughing and joking, and it is clear as day. You know one of those situations where you're arguing you're right, and then it is so obvious that you're wrong. You know what I'm talking about? And then it's like, uh-oh, it's time to admit it. It is still so hard right there in front of my kids to look at my wife and say, I was wrong. You were right. Or you turn it into a joke, right? Some sort of sarcasm. I was wrong. You were right for the first time ever. Because it's so hard to admit when you're wrong. It's so easy to just hide it because that's what sin loves to do. And that's what Adam and Eve did. God comes down out of the garden, or to walk in the garden as he often did. Adam, where are you? I'm over here. Where? In the bushes. Why are you in the bushes? I'm hiding. Why are you hiding, Adam? You think I don't know what you did? The second thing we do often, instead of really uh, repent or maybe a fake repentance, is we rationalize and we justify. 
This is what Saul did in his situation. God told him to eliminate the animals even from the Amalekites that he found in war. But Saul brought the animals back. He's like, oh, I was going to sacrifice them to the Lord. I'm right to do what I want because I had this great other plan. Sometimes justification looks different, right? You may say to yourself, well, if my boss had done this, then I wouldn't have had to do that. Well, if the government had done their part, I wouldn't have had to do what I did. Well, you know, my spouse, if they didn't do this kind of stuff, I wouldn't have to do this kind of stuff. And we start to find these rationalizations, justifications, as if it's okay to do the wrong thing because somebody else did the wrong thing. Saul says, I got a plan. It might not be exactly what God asked, but it'll work good. The problem is, in Saul's plan, he looks like a hero when what God was really looking for was somebody who would be obedient. The third thing we tend to do is shift responsibility. Let's come back to Adam for a minute. So when God says, where are you? I'm hiding. Why are you hiding? Here's Adam's response. He says, she did it. The, The woman you gave me gave me the fruit and I ate it, God. In other words, it's not my fault. If she hadn't done it first, I wouldn't have done it. And the implication of what he says is actually not just did Eve do it. Not only is it not my fault, it's her fault, but it's your fault, God. He says, the woman you gave me. You know, God, when I was just walking here on the earth and there was no Eve, it was just me and you, there was no sin. It wasn't a problem. You made her, she shows up, and now look, see? And we all tend to do these things in three things in varying degrees. And I realize you may be sitting at home with your kids. It may be hard to let this seep in, but I've been praying that God would get your attention to this. Is there something that you do? Are there one of these three things you do sometimes? Because there's a fourth option. And the fourth option is you actually repent. You actually do an about face. You actually turn from the things that don't align with God's heart and you do the right thing. This is what we see David do. In fact, as I told you last week, and if you didn't get to hear it, you don't know the story. I'll give you a quick, quick summary. But David is king and he's older in his you know, middle age years, maybe in his 40s, perhaps in his 50s. We don't know exactly how old he is. And um, he's no longer the fit, svelte David that he once was. He's no longer the, the warrior who used to defeat tens of thousands He's older and he's not as in great a shape and he's insecure about his life. And one day he sees a beautiful woman. He decides that he's the king and he has the right to do whatever he wants. And he's got all these justifications and he spends some time with her and she ends up becoming pregnant. And so to cover up his sin, he has her husband killed. And when the husband is dead, he ends up taking her as his own bride. And he looks like a hero. And nobody knows. He's hidden it. He's rationalized it. He's justified it. He's pulled it off. No one knows except there's a problem. God knows. And so God sends a a prophet. You could think of the prophet maybe like a pastor, a priest. And his name is Nathan. And he comes to David and he tells him a story. He says, there's this man and he's got some guests coming into town, some travelers. And um, he needs to feed his guests because that's what you do. And instead of taking one of his own animals, he's got plenty of animals he could feed this this traveler with, he goes and he actually takes his neighbor's one little baby lamb. And he uses it for the meal. And David is outraged. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 5. David burned with anger against the man and he said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and he had no pity the prophet Nathan looks at him and he says, hey, David, you're the man. You're the man now, dog. Now, here's the point. He told him a story to reveal his sin. And when David realized the outrage he had, he literally judged himself. 
the man who took the lamb. When I took Uriah's wife Bathsheba and had him killed. And he knows exactly what he deserves. This man must die. David knows what would be right over his life for taking Uriah's life. So what does David do? Well, he does the same thing Saul does with major differences. I've sinned. I've sinned against the Lord. But he goes beyond that. David repents. He fasts. He prays. He worships. He doesn't eat. He begs the Lord to forgive him. And God does. The difference between David and Saul. We know about both their stories. We know what happened to both of them. The difference is David took a permanent perspective of repentance, willing to walk in whatever discipline or consequences happened next. He was willing to walk faithfully with the Lord and do whatever must be done. In fact, Paul writes about this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, he tells us the difference between Saul and David without really using those two as an analogy, but he says this, Verse 10, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. This is very similar to the passages in, in, in Hosea, where it says, laying on your bed, you experience the sorrow, but you don't change your heart. In other words, what Paul is telling us is there are really two different kinds of sorrow. Worldly sorrow, it would be like, I feel the weight of the choices that I've made, and I don't like my life. I feel terrible that my marriage is going the way it's going. I feel terrible that my parenting and kids don't you know, want to be around us anymore. I feel terrible there's brokenness between my parents and I. I feel terrible that things in my company and workplace have, have gone this bad. I feel terrible, whatever it is. I feel terrible that I went out and did this thing and these people got hurt. I feel terrible about it. And then you cry out, oh God, just make it stop, make it stop, make it stop. But nothing changes. And the reason nothing changes is because it wasn't godly sorrow. In order for something to be godly sorrow, you have to realize deep in the heart of yourself that the first person you sinned against was not the other person. The first person you transgressed was the very heart of God. In fact, in Psalm 51, David actually writes about this. David goes so far after he did what he did with Bathsheba, after what he did to Uriah, and he says, against you and you alone, Lord, have I sinned. That's a pretty bold statement. I mean, you had a guy murdered to cover up your sin. How can you possibly say against you and you alone, Lord? David wasn't wrong. Because here's the thing for us to recognize. When I do something sinful, I am going against the very heart, the very character, and the very nature of an infinitely holy God. This is not little. This is not small. It's not insignificant. It is so significant that God allowed his only son to be brutally murdered on a cross to show you how much he loves you. Wasn't there another way? No, there wasn't. Because sin is terribly costly and terribly painful. And until we realize how much so, we'll keep thinking we're dabbling in something that's not significant. So how do I accomplish godly sorrow instead of worldly sorrow? How do I even get there? Well, the first thing, the Bible tells us that the word is repentance. See, godly sorrow brings repentance. What is repentance? Repentance literally means to change my mind. To change my mind. As a result of changing my mind, my thoughts, my actions, and my intentions agree with what God says is right and good. In other words, when I come to faith in Jesus Christ, 
What I'm doing is I'm saying, God, I realize that you are my savior. I can't save myself. I've tried. It doesn't work. But I also realize that you're my Lord. You are now the king of kings and the Lord of lords. You are the king of my life. So what you say goes, whether I like it or not, whether I agree with it or not, whether it's easy for me or not, whether it costs me something or not, obedience to you is better than sacrifice. So God, I will give you my heart and my life. It's the only thing I bring to the table. You've done everything else. Here is me. That's what it means. In fact, repentance is such a critical thing. Did you know in the book of Acts, we are told there are times that people weren't saved by belief. People weren't saved by faith. People were actually saved by repenting. It's because these two things go hand in hand. To come to faith in Jesus Christ is to accept his sacrifice as good enough for your sin. Remember Easter? If you were with us on Easter, if not, trust me, go back and watch Easter. When Jesus died on Good Friday, he took my worst, but when he raised from the dead on Easter Sunday, he gave me his life. He gave me his best. Some people call it a double imputation. The idea that my sin was imputed into him and his life was then imputed into me. Imputed just means that it was put into me. It wasn't something I can do. It was something that was done for me. But repentance, when I come to faith, it's not just generic belief. To come to faith means to trust in, to lean upon, to give my life to. In fact, we're told in the book of James that even the demons believe in God and shudder, but they're not saved because they've not surrendered their life. Peter says it this way in Acts chapter 3, verse 19. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. This is beautiful. I love it. This one rings in my head all the time. Repenting, agreeing with God about what is good and what is evil, aligning my heart and my intentions to what is good instead of what is evil, actually brings the very thing that we're looking for, refreshing, peace, hope, a clean conscience. So how do I repent? I think there's three major stages to repentance. And I want to be very careful. Um, years ago, I, I met a, a Mormon guy. I was selling some stuff at Facebook Marketplace, and we kind of hit it off, and I ended up performing his uh, marriage to a, another lady, a Mormon lady. And uh, the reason I could do that is because they were both not Christians. I could marry them together. I could marry two Christians. I can marry um, two non-Christians. I can't marry a Christian to a non-Christian. The Bible's clear on that one, and I have to stand with the Lord on this. And so we've developed the friendship, and even though they've moved, and we still talk and share messages, and I pray with them and encourage them, and, and I keep pointing them to Jesus. So we sit down, and we start talking about our faith. Now, in the Mormon faith, if you're going to repent, one of the things that you have to do is you've got this nine-part process you have to carry out. You have to carry out all nine parts before you're forgiven. It's not how it is in Christianity. And I want to be very careful that what I'm about to share with you is not a nine-part process three-part, I'm actually saying three-part, legalistic process. What I'm sharing with you is the stages that we see, the natural progression. If you truly want godly sorrow and not worldly sorrow, here's what it'll look like, right? Stage one, it's conviction, conviction. This is the moment that it's revealed to you. It is exposed, you're exposed in the moment that your life doesn't line up with God's requirements. This is Saul when Samuel confronts him. This is David when Nathan confronts him. You may get confronted by a song, a passage, a sermon. I hear from people all the time, man, it's like you were preaching right at me. You might even be feeling that right now. Something the Spirit, we're actually told in John 15, the Holy Spirit will go and convict the world of sin. So if God is convicting you of something you're doing right now, you need to change, then I want to encourage you, listen. 
When David, says Psalm 32, when David realized that his life didn't line up with God's, Psalm 32, verse 3, David says, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. In other words, David was experiencing conviction deep in his heart. I'd sinned, but I was trying to hide it. And the more I tried to hide it, oh, I was just eating in my stomach. Start paying attention to the physical body. When, when you're feeling all these outward effects of things, it could be that God is trying to get your attention. You are not living the way you're supposed to be living. Is there a conviction that God's trying to bring about in you and through you? So you start with a conviction. I know what I'm doing is wrong. I need to change. Stage two, though. Stage two, you can't just have a conviction. You've got to do something about it. And stage two, when we move from worldly sorrow, worldly sorrow, everybody feels stage one, it feels terrible, I don't like it, it isn't good, I don't want it to stay this way. Stage two, though, where we go from worldly sorrow to godly sorrow, is we move into this point of a commitment. A commitment. And a commitment is just this decision to agree with God. I recommend praying, journaling, and even confessing. I mean, literally, not generically, like, oh God, I know I'm not perfect, would you forgive me? When you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you make that kind of commitment. There might be something specific. I'm going to stop doing these things because I know they're evil. God, I'm going to start doing these things. But when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you are now agreeing with him. You're going to be specific in your prayer time. God, I did this, I did this, I did this. And oh, by the way, I wanted to do it. And the reason I wanted it is because of this and this and this. And I know those are evil. And I don't like that I do them. But God, I do them. And I want to stop. And God, I'm sorry. And I recommend even going so far as confessing to a friend. Somebody spiritual. Somebody who loves Jesus and will lead you to his arms. Because God wants to always shine a big light in the dark areas of your heart. So if there's some area that nobody knows about and it's owning you and it's eating your lunch, don't hide anymore. We're going to talk about that next week in more detail. But David says in Psalm 31 verse 5, Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And what happened is a byproduct. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. I think it's John, and in 1 John, I think it is, he says, God is faithful and will forgive us if we confess our sins. When we come to God and just say, God, here's what I did, and I know it's not good, and I know it's not right, will you forgive me? God is faithful and will forgive you. Take some time today to do that. But that leads us to stage three. See, it's easy to think, well, that's enough, that's enough. Like, I've done everything I need to do, right? I agree with God, and I told him about it, and I'm so thankful. But stage three is change. Remember, repent is an about face. It's a change of direction. I was going this way. That was evil. Now I'm going to go that way. I'm going to go the exact opposite direction. And change is a pursuit of a new way forward. I want to be clear. I want to give you the urgency. This is an immediate change. Like, don't put this off 10 years and 20 years. That would be worldly sorrow. Like, okay, I know it's bad. I'll get to it when I get to it. But I also accept that sometimes this is cyclical. It's, it's two steps forward and 10 steps back, and it's five steps forward, and it's eight steps back, and then it's 10 steps forward, and it's two steps back, and then it's 30 steps forward, and it's no steps back. And next thing you know, you're walking in a new way. Some people have radical change, and it's instant, and it's overnight, and they never go back to it again. And sometimes it takes time to learn a new pattern. But whatever you do, agree with God that th whatever it is you're thinking in your head that God's leading you to is right or wrong, that you're not going to do it anymore, and start finding a new way, catching yourself before you make that kind of joke, uh, not saying that kind of thing to your spouse when they get mad at you or, or whatever, and I'm not going to lash out in these ways anymore. You're beginning to repent before the Lord. I don't care what they do. God, I'm going to do what you say is right and good. And Paul, in 
I read you 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, and verse 11, Paul says to the church at Corinth, See what this godly sorrow has produced in you? Oh, what earnestness. What eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. In other words, Paul, in 1 Corinthians, he calls them out and rebukes them of a whole bunch of things. In 2 Corinthians, he goes, yes, since my first letter now here in this second letter, you guys have worked so hard to show change. Being a Christian doesn't mean you're never going to sin again. Being a Christian means that when you do sin, you know how to repent. And look, there's one major question that I just don't have time for right now. But I'm going to dedicate our podcast this week to this subject. I'm going to encourage you to go listen to it. You can go to your podcast store, however you get podcasts, and go look up a step further. That's what we call it. Kingsway Christian Church, a step further. But here's the topic. Pastor, I've got this thing in my past and it's eating my lunch. And I've asked the Lord to forgive me and I've been specific. But how do I know? How do I know if I'm really forgiven? Because I don't feel forgiven and I still feel terrible. It's my fault. Family looks the way it does. It's my fault. The business looks the way it does. It's my fault. Our life group looks the way it does, whatever it is. How do I know? And I want to leave you with hope, not without an answer. That's why I need to share this with you. You have to remember to preach the gospel to yourself. Jesus is for you. He is with you. And he loves you. Your enemy wants to remind you of who you were. God wants to tell you who you are. Lean into the voice of truth that tells you a better story. The one that says, I love you so much, I spread out my arms just like this to show you. And now, let's sing to the God of love.